0: Well, we have been covering this book of Philippians. Paul started the church in Philippi on his second missionary journey. And now he is in prison, and the church of Philippi was the only church that really helped him out as he was in prison in Rome. And they sent a gift to him. And he wanted to write a letter to thank him for that gift but also he wanted to take opportunity to encourage all the Christians uh, in their walk with the Lord. And so Paul has been doing that very thing. Today, we're gonna learn who are the enemies of the cross, and then also understanding our citizenship is already now in heaven. In Philippians three last time, we looked at verse 14 through 16. I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that you have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. So Paul had just talked about how it's not... Pressing forward with our good works, our legalism. It's not going back to Judaism, getting circumcised, trying to keep the law. He said, I can't, all those things is dung. What, do, what am I pressing forward? I want to grab a hold of what God grabbed a hold of me for. I want to experience that resurrection power. I want to be in fellowship with Jesus, even in his sufferings, even unto his death. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, yes, dying is working in us, that life is in you. He talked about being like-minded in the previous chapter, which is putting everybody, seeing everybody as more important than yourself, and putting everybody's interest before your own interest. And so he, he's coming to basically say, I want to die to my will, my wants, my desires, my comforts, and I want to leave this life Having said all, done all, hugged all, smiled at all, shared with everyone I was supposed to. And I don't want to come short of that. But then he realizes in verse 15 and 16 that not every Christian hearing this message is at that place in their maturity in Christ. So he says... As many as are mature, they have this mind already. I, I'm not telling them anything they don't know. But if you think otherwise, well, God will reveal this to you. That there's a point in maturity that you'll come to that place. And, and you'll see that this isn't for just the select few crazy born-again Christians. That it is the Christian life in its normal element. And then he says, there's some of you, because when he talked about I press towards the mark, it literally is sprinting like a lion catching a gazelle. But he comes and he ends in verse 15 by saying, okay, whatever degree you're at, stay at that place and walk. No sprinting's going on at this point in your life. Should be, but it's not. And if you don't think it should be, hopefully God will reveal that to you and bring you into maturity But if not, just don't stop and go backwards. Keep walking, even if it's a limp, even if it's shuffling, shuffle forward. And eventually you'll come to this same standard, this same place of the same mind. Now he's gonna talk about those who are doing less than walking and they are falling backwards. In Philippians 3, verse 17 to 21, Brethren, join with me in following my example. Note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I told you often, and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom will transform our lowly bodies, that it may be conformed into a glorious body. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things. So let's take a look at verse 17 in particular. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who walk, as you have us for an example. So Paul did not think he... Was perfect. He didn't think that uh, being egotistical, like he's the only one that that people should follow. No, he does want that because he knew the clarity he had of Jesus and he knew that his pattern of walk, not perfection, but pretty much was the way the Lord would have a Christian to walk. In 1 Corinthians 11 1, he says, Imitate me. Literally, that's the word mime just as I also imitate Christ. But he told us last week in Philippians 3.12, not that I've already attained, not that I'm perfected, that's not the point. But he also uh, makes it clear that, that his pattern of life, if it's followed, would cause most Christians to go up a couple steps, and everybody would definitely have a guaranteed fruitful life if you followed Paul's example. We're going to see in Philippians 4, 9, the things which you learned, received, heard, saw in me. These do, and the God of peace will be with you. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, and you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Thessalonians 3, nine, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So it says in many places, in different contexts, that we need to, as we read the letters of Paul, read between the lines and ask, what is the character, the words, the attitudes whether it's the heart of forgiving your enemies or loving your enemies or whether it's uh, the attitude towards walking in holiness or walking in honesty or purity or preaching the gospel, just like we did with Jesus in the gospels. We, we heard everything he said, but we watched how he operated. We watched how he addressed people. We watched how he his manner of life, in between the lines of all that was said. And we get a good sense of how Jesus walked for 33 years on this earth. And Paul is saying, Christ gave me revelation for three years while he had been in the Arabian desert, Saudi Arabia, and he had a clear revelation of Jesus and the gospel of grace. And it's Paul's gospel that we preach. The other apostles, for the most part, They concentrated on Jews. Eventually, I think they did spread throughout the world and and focus on Gentiles as well. But Paul uniquely had the gospel for the Gentile nations. And, And so he is saying, you have Jesus in the gospels as your pattern, and now you have the apostle Paul in his epistles as a pattern. And between those two, if you're following Jesus or Paul, either way, you're on the right path to success. And this isn't just happening with me. There are some in your own church in Philippi that are like that. And there are other people that you have met that are Christians from other locations that are like that. Let them be the meat on the bones if you need that kind of help to visualize how. Uh, Christ would walk and use them as an example as well. In Hebrews 6, 12, that you do not become sluggish. I think that's where the church is right now after this pandemic. I'm meeting a lot of Christians that are having a hard time getting back in the, the groove of following the Lord. A little too much Netflix and not enough uh, Other healthy things. They've got sort of stuck. But he said, don't be sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Where is those people? Hebrews 11. The whole chapter are people's faith to follow. On the other hand, there are people that are clearly there that you shouldn't follow. I'm not going to give a bunch of examples, although I could, but I will give you Demas. We know from Colossians 4, 4 14 that he was one of the team, Paul's team. He was there along with Luke and Timothy and Titus and so forth. But yet when we come to the very last book that Paul would write in the last few verses, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4:10, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed. So Paul gives a warning now also to Leaders that do teach things correctly, but they don't practice what they preach. And he said in Hebrews thirteen seven, remember those who rule over you. You have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, but considering the outcome of their conduct. In other words, just because they're anointed in the pulpit doesn't mean that they have an example that one should follow people are often stumbled in that way. Let me explain it this way. God's going to get us all from A to Z in a hundred different ways. Okay, maybe forgiveness or uh, maybe walking in holiness or being kind or being loving or being merciful or maybe financial stewardship or maybe reading the Bible and growing in the word of God. There's all these different venues. In some Christians come in and they they just become the most amazing, a loving person. Where another guy doesn't grow so much in love, but he becomes a very intellectual person in the Bible. Another person gets faced with some really hard things, and so he becomes this forgiving person, this loving person. But yet he still doesn't know much of the Bible. He just hasn't given himself to the word. So what happens is, is you you say well since he's at such a high level in this area i assume that all the other areas he's also grown equally and it's just not true and there are a lot of pastors i think that have studied a lot of the bible and they know a lot about jesus but they really haven't grown much maybe in personal holiness maybe in good in stewardship financially maybe in forgiving And so you have this pastor that's great at preaching it, but yet he's full of bitterness and it does shine through that he is. But he's going to grow in that place. But get your eyes on the Lord and and, and distinguish that, you know, just because you're this amazing, loving person doesn't mean you're good in financial stewardship. Just because you have all this knowledge of the Bible doesn't mean... You've learned to share your faith with non-believers. And and so look at them soberly, look at them accurately, and realize that there's some people that have been in the Lord 50 years and they're amazing in 10 different ways. But there are two things they really haven't even started growing in yet because the uh, seasons of their life, the Lord hasn't just really... Uh, you know, drill down on that to, to help them in that area, but don't judge them for it. We're not perfect. We're all going to get there. But Jesus talks about the rewards or lack of rewards in Matthew five nineteen. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does, key does and teaches them, he shall be called the great in the kingdom of heaven. And I I just know whatever I teach on is what Satan's going to pound me this next week on. So I really hate when I teach on marriage, then Satan just tries to make me the biggest hypocrite in the the month following, Um, or some other areas. So Paul is making that clear. Follow his example, because it's Christ's example. Boy, we, we need to get there. Let everybody have this mind to to walk in this pattern that our Lord set, and the Apostle Paul said and others have said, we, we don't want to stay where we're at. We want to have a great passion, love for God in our heart. We don't want to be lukewarm. We want to grab a hold of what God has grabbed a hold of us with joy and love. You don't want to do it out of fear of rejection or, or, or trying to dot the I and cross the T of your salvation. No. If it's not of love, it's a clanging cymbal, a blasting trumpet. But if it's of love, it's a beautiful thing. Lord, I just wanna know you more out of love. And so we beat our body in subjection. We take up the cross out of love, right? Just like the, the new mom in the middle of the night gets up at three in the morning to go feed her baby, right? It, it's, it's just something you gotta make yourself do because you love your child that you make such sacrifices. It's the same with all spiritual duties because we're in sinful flesh praying. You gotta beat your body in subjection. Study the word, you gotta beat your body in subjection. Come into church, you gotta beat your body in subjection. But yet all these things, the Bible tells us are good works that the Lord would like all of us to participate in. Not to make us saved or to try to guarantee God doesn't blackball you at the end of the day but truly out of love and a desire to grow in Christ and be stronger in the Lord and more fruitful in the Lord. Well, in verse 18, for many walk of whom I told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Interesting. How many pastors and commentators take this as a bat to the Christians? to make them feel guilty that they're not holy enough or pure enough or whatever it is. You're not praying enough or, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself that you have these various struggles in your flesh. You, You should feel like a crumb. I want you to realize that you keep lusting like that and being greedy like that and being angry like that and being bitter like that, you're eventually gonna become an enemy of the cross. Guys, this is not talking about that at all. And it's, it breaks my heart to think that Christians have to wonder, even though I love the Lord today, is it possible in 10 years I become an enemy of the cross? And this is just ridiculous. Of course that's not gonna happen. We just got through teaching all of chapter three, and the enemies of the cross were the Judaizers who said, You gotta be circumcised and keep the law. That's how you know you're saved. <laughs> and Paul comes and says, Absolutely not. We're saved by grace. Having faith in that grace is not of our works, is not of ourselves. But yet these guys didn't understand what happens when you say, I'm getting to heaven by my goodness. I'm getting to to heaven by being circumcised and keeping the law. Here's what happens. Every cult does this. When they lift up their organization to be right with God, you gotta be right with their organization. And it's all about baptism. It's all about being a Mormon. It's all about Jehovah's Witnesses, whatever it is. When they do that, they minimize Christ because he's not that big of a piece of the puzzle, and they definitely minimize the cross. Guys, if you're preaching the gospel, the opposite happens. The cross is lifted up, and Christ and his importance is lifted up. The truth about Jesus is our eyes are on Jesus. The truth, our truth about the gospel is our eyes are on Jesus. The truth about the gospel is we are thankful for the cross and his death and resurrection. That is the focal point. But yet, what do all religions do? What did Judaizers do? Get your eyes on yourself. Are you circumcised? Oh, I got to figure that out. Are you keeping the law? What did you eat? What did you wear? What did you say? What did you? I got to look at me because it's me that's going to keep myself out of heaven. Yeah, God said I'm going to heaven today, but I got to keep my eyes on me because I may not end up in heaven because of me. That's, the gospel is the opposite of that. It's a gift of God. And that gift is irrevocable. It means it can never be changed. God gave us the gift of salvation and it can never be changed. He wrote your name the moment you believed. He wrote your name in the book of life and it will never change. And this is an important thing that we understand the gospel gets our eyes on Jesus in the cross and keeps him there because we do stumble, but we look back to Christ, who is the author and 90% getting you there. Is that what it says? (laughs) No, he's the author and the finisher. Keep your eyes on him. It's about his mercy, his grace, his love, his righteousness, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection. All eyes must be on the Lord continually. And then you have the joy of the salvation. You want to look at yourself? It's not a pretty picture. What did Paul say? I, I mean, this is, he writes that in, in Romans 7. He's this old, mature apostle. And he said, my wretched man that I am, the things I don't want to do, I do the things I do want to do, I don't do Oh, wretched man that I am who will save me from this body of death. Hold it. Just my body, not me in the spirit I'm born again. I'm going to heaven. But my flesh is getting worse. Not better. See, a lot of people think, man, once you really hit the stride of being a mature Christian, even your body starts getting saved. (laughs) My body now wants to read the Bible and love God. And it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't ever. It just gets old and achy. And when you're old and achery, you get miserable. And and it's even harder (laughs) to be a Christian. Not easier the older you grow. In Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now he's going to give an, an analogy of lesser to greater or greater to lesser. Verse 9. Uh, of Romans 5, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. So when you are born again, you are at the worst state you're ever going to be at. You did not have the Holy Spirit in your life. Your name wasn't written in heaven. You, You did not have the Spirit of God living in you but yet you were born again at the worst state. Now he's saying you're a Christian, God's spirit's in you. Your name is written in heaven and some of the word of God is in your life and you're struggling like a sinner struggles. Well, how much more? (laughs) The blood of Christ will cover those sins. You see, it's the logic from the greater to the lesser. If God saved you in this greater sinful place, Why do you think now his grace won't reach you in a lesser state of sinfulness? It just feels greater because we're closer to the Lord. So the sins seem more traumatic because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. But God didn't save you and then hand you the baton and say, now it's up to you whether you make it to heaven or not. Did not happen. And he goes on in verse 10 to say, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And you go on, and then he says this, Where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds abounds more. Whatever the sin, no matter how deep, God's grace goes deeper. Well, I don't think God's grace has ever gone this deep. Well, maybe not. Maybe it's the first time. But it will still go greater. It still will go deeper. It's still his love for you, the blood of the cross, the the mercy and forgiveness of Christ will always be greater than our struggles and our sin and our human failures. Always. In 1 Peter 2, 24 to 25, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now return to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. So this is the key element, that he bore our sins on his own body on the tree. Now we have died to sins, and we are living to righteousness. Righteousness. See, our sins now have been scattered to the east to the west. They've been buried in the deepest sea. It says in Jeremiah 31 34, he remembers our sins no more. So, the, the board, let's picture a big giant white board where our sins used to keep account. Well, when we got born again, that whole board has just been smashed and, and put to dust. So, now when we sin, it's not recorded any longer against us. There is no documentation. We just come by faith to the throne of grace and get all the mercy and grace we need. And and we get up. The righteous man falls seven times. He gets up seven times. Why? Because no matter how deep we fall, God's grace is greater. It's important to remember in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We don't have a jacket that can come on and off of righteousness. Our very nature becomes righteous. Does the shell on the outside? No. But this shell is quickly going to, we're going to get rid of it, right? We're going to talk about this next week in detail. We get rid of the shell. But the true us is righteous, not just righteous, it's exactly righteous as Jesus is righteous. We actually have the same exact righteousness of Christ. That's what God has done. And these gifts and these, this calling, it's irrevocable. It cannot be undone. And to make it clear, this work of salvation, it's not of ourselves, In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. Important. Not of yourself. We often quickly go, it's the gift of God, it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we concentrate on works. Salvation is not of works, and that's true. But equally so, it's not of ourselves. In other words, many have taught, once you become a Christian, you are now, The clock is ticking. In two months, you should be walking like this. In five years, you should be much holier than you were when you first started. And 10 years from now, I mean, you should practically be able to walk on water by then. And if you're not on this thing, we need to doubt whether you really got signed up to begin with. We need to start wondering, were you really saved? You've been doing a good act for the last 20 years, but I don't know because everybody else who's been a Christian 20 years is way up here, and you're way down here. Ridiculous. It's not of ourself. It's not of our past self. It's not of our present self. It's not of our future self. We bring nothing to the table, but a sinful body, a rebellious spirit, and Christ does 100% of the work. It's a gift, not of ourselves, not of anything we have done works-wise, are doing works-wise, or ever will. In other words, people think this way. I signed you up for the baseball team to hit home runs. Or maybe you're a pitcher. I expect you to be a great pitcher. But after three years, we're gonna trade you. The devil gets you. You're gonna be on his team from now on. But they have this sense, like God signed me up, so man, I would start having these good works and being holy and sharing my faith and teaching Bible studies, and 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 I, I'm not, I'm, I keep, I'm, it's like a roller coaster. I feel like I am that guy, and then I go to the valley, and I feel like I'm not that guy, and and I, it's hard. What do I do with that? Well, again, it's important that we understand God wants you in fellowship with him that's it and some of us do grow into maturity and a more fruitful life and some don't but God does not have children good children and bad children we does weak Christians and strong Christians fruitful Christians more fruitful Christians less fruitful Christians but we're all his children And he loves us equally. What is God required of you, O man, Micah says, but to do justly? If I sin, confess that sin. Do justly. I know God wants me to seek him first in his kingdom and his righteousness. God, give me grace. I'm going to do that. I'm going to seek to do that. Do justly. To love mercy. That means giving it as well as receiving it. And then just to walk humbly with your God. That's all he ever wanted with Adam and Eve. That's all he desires is you and your fellowship with him. In John 3:16, again, you hear the dogmaticness of how certain salvation is. God loved us. He didn't think we were a bunch of pathetic humans that needed help. No, he wanted us. He loves us. He wants us to make us kings and priests unto him that whoever believes shall not perish, very emphatic, and shall have eternal life. These things are not possibilities, a possibility of, of not perishing. There's a possibility of having eternal life. No, the gospel can be full of joy right this very moment, full of joy. But people say, well, did they have saving faith? Did they have a repenting faith? Did they have a real faith? Did they have a sincere faith? You know what the Bible does? It doesn't ever qualify faith. It just says, man, it can be a little tiny bit and it's enough. That's what the Bible says about faith. It can be the size of the smallest seed that was known at that time, a little tiny mustard seed. You can move a mountain. I don't think getting born again is as hard as moving a mountain. I think it's a a tenth of a mustard seed. You can be saved. Well, what makes you think that? Because right before John 3.16, he actually tells Nicodemus, what is it like getting born again? It's like this. You remember that old story in Numbers where the children of Israel were getting bit by snakes because they were murmuring and rebelling and and they cried out and, and, God, and Moses said, God, what shall I do? And, and he said, put a bronze serpent on a pole. They're flagpoles they used to hold up. And if anybody gets bit, just have them look at the bronze serpent on the pole and they shall live. Well, remember Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ, that serpent representing our sin, evil. And so, what does Jesus say there in John 3, verse 14 and 15? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There it is. John 3.16 and and John 3.15. If you know John 3.16, you also know John 3.15. You didn't know that. But what, what was the amount of faith? They just looked, even for a fraction of a second. They just looked, okay, I'm good, let's go on. You see, I, th- I think the thief on the cross that got born again is not an exception to the rule. It's always when you talk to Colts, well, he's an exception to the rule, let's not use him. No, I think he is the rule. I think everybody who's in heaven is gonna get to heaven exactly like the thief on the cross got to heaven. His hands were tied. His feet were tied. It wasn't his works. He had been a thief all his life and he had been blaspheming, mocking Jesus on the way to his own cross. It wasn't of himself. It wasn't of himself. It wouldn't be ever of his works. But he heard Jesus say, Father, forgive me. They know not what they do. And there he changed his mind when he heard the kindness of Christ. And he realized there's hope for me. And even though I've spent my entire life being a thief and sinful, so incorrigible that they're crucifying a thief, that didn't happen very often, if at all. But I still believe, as miserable as I have been, not of myself. Even though my, I will never live past this day and never do anything for this guy or his organization or his, for other people on earth, I still believe that he will be merciful to me. That's a lot of faith, isn't it? And his prayer was horrible. Don't ever try to use it. it won't, you know, you, you'll feel it's insufficient. Would you like to receive the Lord today? Just say, Jesus, remember me. That's it. Jesus, Lord, remember me. When, future tense, you come into your kingdom. Well, did he repent? Did he have a big faith? Did he have a sincere faith? It it doesn't qualify it. it. It just says, that's it. Jesus, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. He believed he was a king. He believed he'd be raised from the dead. And he believed that he was kind. He didn't know anything else. And Jesus says, Today you'll be with me in paradise because it's not of our works. And so many walk, he said here, who are now enemies of the cross. That's these Judaizers who are more focused on circumcision and keeping the law. And oh, yeah, yeah, we're we're glad that Jesus guy died on the cross. That's not that's not a bad thing. That's a little helpful. That's a little helpful. Jesus dying, paying for our sins, and raising again. I, I believe that too. That's that's good. But let, let's get back to the study here. We got six hundred and thirteen laws you need to obey. Let's let's focus on this. The Galatian church was having this same problem. Listen, if you would, Paul said, "Give yourself to the public reading of Scripture." To Timothy, so we're going to read a lot of Scripture, but it's all so valuable. So hang in there. In Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ. Let me say it again, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, but by works of the law. Here it is again. No flesh shall be justified. He goes on in verse 21 of Galatians 2. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if the righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. It was worthless. He didn't need to do that. Galatians 5 now, verse 1 through 11. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. Grace, the gospel of grace, gives us freedom by which Christ has made us free. And do not be in strain entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And if I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, that he is a debtor to keep the whole law, which nobody can do. You have become estranged from Christ. You are attempted to justify the law. This is scary. You have fallen from grace. It's by grace we're saved. It's by grace we make it through a day. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope, the certainty. The word hope in the the Greek is a certain, certainty, not like our American hope uh, in our our language. So it would actually say the certainty of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. I love that verse, faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him, God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who calls you a little. Leaven, leaven's the whole lump. When you start down the path of putting your eyes on yourself and you just start little things, you know. Christians don't dance. Christians don't go to R-rated movies. Christians don't, you know, whatever the law is. Once you start down that road, making yourself more righteous and more holy by not doing this and doing this, it's a slippery slope. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. I brethren if I still preach Christ or circumcision and I brethren if I still preach circumcision why do I still suffer persecution for here it is the offense of the cross has ceased Paul realized by talking about the cross we're talking about the depths of our sinfulness man in his fallen state believes he's somewhat good are you a good person yeah I'm a good person that's it's blindness it's a spiritual blindness and, and so the cross says Christ didn't die for good people to get better. He didn't die for good people to be gooder. He didn't die for great people to be greater. The cross says our sins were wicked and despicable and evil. And Christ had to horribly suffer and die because you and your sinfulness is that great. This is offensive. Hebrews, they had the same problem. This is a second generation Jewish Christians. And listen to how Paul talks about it in Hebrews 10. Again, reading a rather large passage. For the Lord, having shadow of good things to come and not very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, Make those who approach perfect. So he's picking up a thought from chapter 9, but he's, he's saying that the priest never did anything that had permanence. Everything they did had to be redone the next year. And in verse 2, for then would they have ceased to be offered. If their sacrifices made a person righteous and took away their sin, they wouldn't have had to offer another sacrifice. But the fact that they do says, What they're doing doesn't last. For the worshiper, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can, here's the key word, take away sins. The Old Testament is very clear. It's an atonement, which means a covering. It covers sin covers it up it's still there it just covers it up therefore when he came into the world he said sacrifice and offerings you did not desire but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you had no pleasure then I said behold I have come in the volume of the book as it's written of me to do your will O God previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sins, you did not desire. You can read the last book of Malachi. The people were doing it sluggishly. They did Their hearts weren't in it. They despised God for, for having to do anything for him, whether it was giving of their offerings or going to the temple or praying. They, they, they It was a burden to them. And God said, I don't want to burden you. Stop doing it. So he no longer desired that nor had pleasure in them, which are the offerings according to the law. In verse nine, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He, this is Jesus, takes away the first that he may establish the second, talking about the covenants. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Remember John the Baptist when he first saw Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. In Hebrews 10:14, for the one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In Hebrews 10:29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose he will be thought worthy of? Who tramples the Son of God underfoot? Jesus and the cross and him dying, it's it's minimal compared to what you do and getting circumcised, and keeping the law. And you're counting the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified a common thing, and you insult the spirit of what? Grace. You see, the cross is the only message that we have. It's the only good news. Paul says our gospel is this, delivered to you once for all, you have received it. Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture. He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day, according to Scripture. For the message of the cross, in one Corinthians one eighteen, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who believe, who are being saved, it's this power of God. In 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 25, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, Greeks seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ, what? Crucified. Crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, a foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of the God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And I'm telling you, I, I've gone out and shared the Lord so many times, as many of you have. And and two people stand side by side, and when you start telling them about Christ dying on the cross, being buried, and rose again a third day, according to the Scripture. One is just pierced to the heart, like, what must I do to be saved? And the next person next to them is saying, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. How true it is. But to those who believe, in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and what? Him crucified. That's it. I want to talk about Jesus, and most importantly, the greatest act that this earth will ever hear about. The greatest day on earth, the greatest few hours that ever existed, is when Christ was on the cross. The most important weekend was when Christ was buried and rose again on the third day. It changed the entire course of history and he said i was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of man but in the power of god the resurrection power so paul says there are some now that are enemies of the cross Many walk now, and I've often told you they're enemies of the cross. And I tell you, weeping, Paul never wept for all the persecutions he got, for all the beatings he got, all the imprisonments he had, all the shipwrecks he had. We never find Paul feeling sorry for himself or weeping over his aches and pains. But he is weeping over those that are insecure they're thinking I believe Jesus on the cross and his death and resurrection but I've been a Christian now two years and I'm struggling like I've never struggled as a Christian and and this guy told me at at this bible study I know he's not a part of our church but he he told me I need to go back and and get in touch with my Jewish roots and and he asked me if I got circumcised as a child I told him no and He's, he's uh, going to hook me up with this guy. And, and, uh, and I, I did not know about being kosher. I didn't even know about that. Did you know we're not supposed to eat cheese with the hamburger? And man, ever since I've been going to this Bible study, I've been following the law. I feel so much better about myself. I'm a much more disciplined person now. Yeah, there's an appearance of wisdom in this stuff. But Paul's going to say in a minute, it's not wisdom. So the law in and of itself cannot save anyone. In Romans 3, verse 19 to 20, Now we know whatever the law says, it says those who are under the law, that every mouth might be stopped, and all the world become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, listen, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's it. It makes sin utterly sinful and it brings us to our knees saying, I and my good works will never get me there. I give up. I need a savior. I need somebody else to save me because I cannot save me. It seems like the harder I try, the worse I do. The more disciplined I try to be, the worse I am. The more I try not to sin, I seem to sin 10 times more when I try not to sin. I've discovered in me, there's this principle, there's this law that, that I myself am incapable of walking in righteousness. I need somebody to save me and help me. I can't do it. In Acts 15, remember, you had these group of called, they were calling themselves Christians and they probably were from Judea, but they, they didn't understand. They hadn't been discipled properly and they were going through all the places where Paul had been telling them they needed to get circumcised and keep the law. And Paul grabbed them by the ear and said, we're going back to Jerusalem. And uh, they got back there and they had this council, the first council, far as we know, in Acts 15. And Peter says, guys, the lord used me to preach to gentiles and god's holy spirit poured out on them poured out on us exactly like the day of pentecost and he showed me that they're born again without being circumcised or keeping any law so in verse acts 15 verse 9 and made no distinction between us and them purifying their hearts by faith now therefore why do you test god by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. And in verse 11, he makes it clear, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. The same goes for all religions. It's not just Judaism. It's not just Judaizers. And Paul in Galatians 1, 6-9 says, I marvel at your turning away so soon from him, the true Jesus, who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you, want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Even if we, if I come back and tell you something different than I said before, reject me. Or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel than you, we have preached, let them be accursed, anathema, damned to the lowest part of hell. We said before, and now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be anathema. Paul says in Acts 20, the gospel is the gospel of grace. And he goes on to say, and Galatians 11, if I, they were telling everybody that Paul also was teaching circumcision, and Paul said, no way. If I preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? The offense of the cross has ceased. And then he goes on to tell, explain how painful it's been preaching the cross. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, in Galatians 6.12, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. In Galatians 6, 14, and God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So these ones that are telling people to be under the yoke of bondage, teaching a different Jesus, a different gospel, Paul says four things are gonna happen to them. Their end will be destruction, whose God is in their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. These four characteristics of Judaizers. One, they're gonna end up in destruction because there's only one way of salvation. Jesus alone said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There's only one name under heaven in which men can be saved. And so again, If you're telling people that they can get to heaven by keeping the law or by being a good person, they're going to end up in destruction. They're going to end up in hell because that's a lie. We cannot earn our way to salvation by our good works. And our good works don't undo one past sin. God, whose God is their belly. They're, all, they're, they're concentrating on, on religious stuff, in particular, being kosher. Paul says in Colossians 2 that the law was nailed to the cross along with our sins. You know, Jesus didn't just die on the cross for our sins. He also crucified the law. Interesting, isn't it? So it's gone. The law is gone. We now just look read the Old Testament to see Jesus' nature from the Old Testament. There's no laws that apply to us. And he goes on to say in Colossians 2, 16 to 18, let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding festivals or new moons or Sabbath. All these things were a shadow to come. The whole Old Testament was a shadow of the true Messiah, Jesus. He's the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward. Taking delight in false humility, Worship of angels, intruding to those things which you're not seen, vainly puffed up by fleshly mind. Listen now in verse Colossians two twenty and 23. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic princes of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Going back to the law. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. <laughs> which all concern the things which perish with the using, according to the commandments of the doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion. All communes out in the middle of the desert or the mountains at first have a sense in the honeymoon period that there's something special going on here, but it's not. It's a self-imposed religion like all of them. False humility, neglect of the body, keeping the strict dietary law, are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In the honeymoon period, it may appear that they're helping you, but it won't. And it also leads you away from Christ. So their God is their belly. They're concentrating on what I eat, what I don't eat, how I purify my body. And and it's all about food. What else is it? Their glory is in their shame. Things they should be ashamed about, they boast in. And then it's all about earth stuff what you touch, what you handle, what you eat, how you look, what you wear. It's all the eyes are on you and on the earth stuff rather than on Christ, on the things above. We're gonna cover this next week a little more detail and also in verse 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that we may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Well, Lord, thank you for your word today. And Lord, let it be established in our heart, Lord, the truth of the gospel. That even now, so many try to take these kinds of verses out of context to make it seem like Christians can fall short and and lose their salvation or they can become enemies of the cross or they can somehow get on God's bad side or get on the blacklist or God would not be irrevocable that he would revoke their gift he would take away their calling that he would erase their name from the book of life that that he would indeed take the spirit out of their hearts that he would take away the seal that he put upon All believers, Lord, we know that even more faithless, you remain faithful because it's your very nature. You who began this good work will complete it and you're with us always. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. And so Lord, we come and we just ask that even though when we're struggling in our flesh and we want to look to some seminar, (laughs) some book, some, some cure, to to help us in our human frailties and sins and struggles and even wickedness at times. That we need to keep our eyes upon you, that you paid for all our sins on the cross, that your blood is continually cleansing us even right now in the present and in the future from all our sins. We thank you for that. Hide your word deep into our heart now, Lord. Let us have the joy of salvation and the joy of the gospel the good news that we can tell people they shall not perish they shall have eternal life by just looking to you and being saved looking to the one who bore all our punishment our eternal punishment our sins our shame our guilt our failures our shortcomings our out-and-out evil, everything that is less than perfect, you took it on the cross and destroyed it. It's gone away forever and ever and ever. If you're here today and you've realized, man, I've just never believed in Jesus alone for salvation, then right now do it. Jesus, I thank you for being my Savior. I do believe you bore my sins on the cross. I believe you were buried and on the third day rose again, conquering my sin and my shame. And more importantly, give me the victory that I will be with you in heaven forever. And just wash all of us in the water of your word this day. In Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen.